Recorded live from somewhere from the depths of my soul, it's Transformation Thursday. I am Amy Stevens and my pronouns are she, her. As some of you know, I recently started working towards my master's in mental health counseling and in my first class I was blown away with this one simple premise. All counseling is cross-cultural. Wow, mind blown, right? But if you really think about this statement, it's true because as Penny and I have discussed on this podcast now for almost one year, no two people experience life exactly the same way. My guest this evening is Lisa Getzko. On paper, if you were to look at our backgrounds, you might think we're very similar in the way we approach cultural issues, but the truth of the matter is we're not. Looking at our backgrounds, we're both white, female, both have white parents from St. Paul, Minnesota, who actually grew up pretty close to each other in the 60s. Both Lisa and I graduated from the same high school, White Bear Lake, Minnesota, Go Bears, in the early 1990s, but that's where the similarities end. Tonight, you'll hear the interview I did with Lisa Getzko about her background, raising two biracial sons as a single mom in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, which is only 30 minutes from downtown Minneapolis. Lisa and I discussed what it was like for her to raise her sons in an affluent white suburban school district, I should say primarily white, how she deals with race as a white woman raising sons of color, and how life has changed for them since the murder of George Floyd. We will do that next, but not after the traditional music swell and fade out, because you usually Penny engineers at, and I'm just not feeling up to it tonight. Anyway, we'll be right back with my interview with Lisa Getzko next on Transformation Thursday. Let's talk about change, Amy. Okay, let me see. It looks like I've got three quarters, a nickel, a Canadian loonie, and a few British tenors from when I was in London, because I'm an international comedian. No, not that change. Change is in transformation. The topic of Transformation Thursday. Oh, yeah, that. Well, we're doing this podcast to highlight how much things change and how quickly they do it in society today. Everything changes, and change isn't good or bad. It just is. The more we realize that change is just the natural progression of things, the better off we'll be. Now, let's talk about change. Didn't we just do that? No, no, not the last one. The first one. The coins. Money. About how people can give us some of theirs so that we can continue talking about ours. Are you just trying to get people to go to our Patreon page to support this podcast so that we can continue our exploration of what it means to live in a rapidly changing world? Because although this is a labor of love, we do have expenses, and by going to TransformationThursday.com, they can help ensure that we can continue to be bringing this fun and insightful commentary on the world today, plus get exclusive patrons-only content. Um, if I say yes, can we get on to our next segment? Oh, God, I hope so. Okay, then. TransformationThursday.com. Also, can you break a 20 for me? Sure. I can get that to you in euros. Okay, now you're just showing off. Hi, welcome back to the special episode of Transformation Thursday. I'm Amy Stevens. My pronouns are she, her. As always, it's fun here to do these interviews. And uh, today we have a friend of mine on. And as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, we're going to be talking about some really serious topics right now. You know, as we go through life in these times, we're dealing with this pandemic and we're dealing with race relations. Um, but, you know, I decided that I was going to take this on from a little different angle today. Um, I'm actually just started a graduate program at a local university here. I'm working on my master's in mental health counseling. And right out of the gate, I was um, uh, one of my first big assignments is to um, talk to people from different cultural backgrounds. And one of the things I'm learning about culture is that, you know, we could have somebody sitting across from us in a counseling situation, in a life situation, any situation really. And even though we look alike, we act alike, and maybe we come from very similar backgrounds, we're still going to have a different cultural viewpoint on life because we all have different experiences. You've heard Penny and I talk about this all the time on the podcast is that no two people are going to have the exact same experience. No two people are going to be trans the same. No two people are going to be cisgendered the same. No two people are going to have the same life experiences because we all take in different information. We give out different information. And the way our brain processes these things is, is, is highly individualistic and highly variable in what's going on in our brain. And the simplest of things that we think, you know, like just waving to somebody, saying hi, the neuron, correct, uh, the neuron connections in your brain to make those things happen are quite complicated. So this is an interesting conversation because, you know, what I want to challenge you with through with this is, 
you know, as we continue to talk about these things, start to think about how your culture, how your background forms your opinions of everything and how somebody even from maybe your next door neighbor, let's say, is, might have a very different viewpoint from you because of their life experiences. So today uh, we're going to welcome on to the podcast, Lisa Getzko. Lisa is a mother, uh, old friend of mine, somebody who didn't really grow up with me, grew up with my sister, but you know, through um, Facebook, social media and all that kind of fun stuff, uh, we've kept in touch over the years. Um, so it's a lot of fun to have Lisa on, but we'll start talking about why we're having Lisa on here um, a little bit, but first, hi Lisa, thanks for coming on today. Hi Amy, thank you, thanks for having me. It's so nice to see your bright smiley face through this ah! thing called Zoom. <laughs> Could you imagine like growing up like 20, 30 years ago, like we just, you know, we'd be in the middle of this pandemic and you'd be talking to your friend Amy who looked drastically different, you know, back, you know, even 10 years ago when you saw me. Yeah. And, you know, and we're in this pandemic and we're just having this video conference like it's nothing. It's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And I've so, improved my skills using these virtual tools in the last two months. And so you should be very proud of yeah, me. Two months I ago, I don't even think I would have logged on appropriately. <laughs> Well, you were, you were on, you were, you had no problem getting into the Zoom call and yeah. got started right on time. So, you know, I give you <laughs> congratulations for that. So just real quick, you know, um, talk a little bit about, you know, real quick, you know, who Lisa Getzko is at a high level, what you do for a living, if you're comfortable, you know, maybe not your employer, but at least maybe, you know, what you do for a living and some of that professional background, and then we'll jump into the personal stuff. Okay, thanks. Yeah, so again, I'm Lisa. Um, I always identify first as Lisa, mom of two young men. Um, I'm a single mom. I've been raising uh, my sons, Donovan and Isaiah, um, with sole custody for the last 11 years. Um, their father and I were together, obviously, before that. Um, and so for the last 11 years, it's just been the three of us. Um, so when I think about who am I, I'm Lisa and I'm a mom. Um, and then I also um, am very um, passionate about um, my career. Uh, my career is in social services. I'm a social worker um, by trade. And for a majority of my life, I have uh, focused on career and employment services for folks who've been impacted in any way, shape, or form um, when it comes to employment. Um, I always say that everything impacts work and work impacts everything. Um, so while I focus a lot on helping people with career journeys and employment, um, it's really about all those things that wrap around. So it can be housing, um, food, um, mental health, all of the things that some people take for granted um, and uh, some people don't think about when they're not, you know, when you have a job, you don't think about what life might be like without a career. Um, so my social work background tied with being a with being a single parent and um, really having a huge passion and helping and supporting people is kind of how I describe who Lisa is. And, and I would imagine with the pandemic, there's a lot more people that are finding themselves in these tougher situations, right? Yes, we are in the most stressful of times when it comes to employment. Um, we've, we've all heard the statistics, the unemployment rates, uh, people being furloughed, losing jobs, etc. Um, because I've been doing this work for about 25 years, um, I also uh, did the same type of work through the recession in 2009 up through about 2012. And of course, it lingered on beyond that. Um, this is even worse because there's an even higher level of uncertainty and then a lot of other things intersecting and affecting um, folks' ability to go to work, uh, maintain work, employer's ability to maintain their their workforce um, so it's really stressful times right now and it's kind of um, uh, difficult for me to kind of mentally untangle because there are so many people losing employment and I'm on the other end of the continuum I'm working 50 60 hours a week um, because the type of work and support that we provide um, has swung over to that that end of the continuum where we're in such uh, great need and despite the fact that there's uh, high unemployment, there's still a lot of things we do as, as providers and support um, services to kind of help keep people engaged and planning and connected, because um, that's the key when, when folks are not working. But yeah, really, really 
really uncertain, stressful times right now. Yeah. And helping you, folks. Yeah. And I can imagine you said stressful times in there, you know, a couple of times. So, you know, mm -hmm. that they really are stressful times and, you know, we're not going to talk much more about your work life. I mean, maybe we come back to that at a later, mm -hmm. at a later juncture, you may, we can loop Penny into this conversation, but you know, you, you have a unique situation at home with where you live and everything else. And I would imagine these stressful times complicate that. So, you know, we'll get into that a little bit later, but you know, let's, let's start from the beginning. I mean, what was, what was your upbringing like for Lisa? And by the way, you know, I hope it's okay, but your hometown is the same hometown as mine and you still live there. So uh, yeah. wipe, White Bear Lake, Minnesota, go Bears. Um, if you don't know that <laughs> reference, go watch the movie Fargo. And yes, we do talk like that. So <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. but you know, I know what my perception is. Like I said, my reality of growing up in White Bear Lake was, you know, yeah. but what, what was your upbringing like there? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, born and raised in White Bear Lake. I still live in White Bear Lake. I've been kind of, uh, gently teased by some folks saying, you know, boy, you really didn't get out much in life, but that's not true. Um, I did, you know, make a journey around and um, I'm back in White Bear, um, moved back to raise my sons here because my mother was an in-home daycare provider and still was when my sons were born. So it was kind of a no brainer, like, of course, I'm going to live close to home and she's going to do the daycare for my sons. So that's kind of what brought me back. Um, so yeah, mom was a daycare provider. Dad was a uh, a, a part service counter guy at a dealership and I have one sister younger than me and I did all the things that you know a, a young girl would want to do dance uh, cheerleading tried some volleyball uh, had a little part-time job bought a $500 car when I was 16 had a hole in the gas tank didn't know it no wonder why I couldn't keep gas in it um, but, you know, my parents are still married today. Um, so I would describe my upbringing as, you know, if you were to describe a, a suburban white family, that was me. Yep. And so as, as we talk about that, and that's, that's my recollection too, you know, of course, um, one of the things that most of our listeners probably don't know is that my sister is Korean. So, you know, my family adopted her. So I had some different realities when it came about race, but, you know, and culture. But what was your exposure to different race and cultures growing up in White Bear Lake? Yeah, um, I, I think, you know, with my mom being an in-home daycare provider, um, she, she did daycare for some families and kids that were not white, um, people of color. And I was also in dance and had some dance friends that were, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, just multiracial. But at the time, I guess I didn't even recognize or identify or understand what that meant. Um, so when I think about answering the question, you know, thinking about cultures I grew up in, um, you know, how I would describe that now is not really how I saw it and, and, and would describe it then. Um, I would say at a very young age, around 16, 17 years old, uh, I had a lot of trust with my parents and had some friendships where I spent time outside of White Bear Lake. Um, being a dancer, I was really intrigued by hip hop dancing and so was exposed to and, and a part of some different dance groups, which also brought some multicultural life experiences and engagements for me. And it wasn't until I started college um, in human services that I was really able to start to identify and recognize that um, while I may have seen myself as, as interacting and engaging with lots of folks that were not the same as me, and I'll come back to that because when I say not the same as me, I'm um, intentionally centering myself on that. Um, and I'll describe what I mean by that maybe further into that conversation. But I thought, oh, well, I interact with people who are different than me. Like, um, I have lots of exposure to different cultures. Um, it wasn't until I started doing um, internships and learning more about race and culture in my 20s that I really understand that, um, you know, my exposure was actually pretty limited, even though I thought it was a lot more broader than, I, than it really was. Yeah, I think I think I would agree with that. You know, I thought, you know, you want to think of yourself as this great open minded person, and you start really looking at your exposure to these things, you're like, 
maybe I'm not as open or as exposed as I thought I was. So, and mm -hmm. I'm, you know, and I'm battling that right now, going through this class and these times, just thinking, you know, what an incredible amount of privilege I've had over the years. So, you know, when you when you look back though, did you ever talk about race or racism with your parents as a family? What it meant to be white, what it meant to have, um, you know, different cultures and different people of color around you? Was that ever a conversation point in your household? It was, it was. So my parents would say, uh, you know, they shared that they, they grew up in the Selby Dale neighborhood of St. Paul and vividly remember the construction of Highway 94. Um, that's a hugely, yep. that's, that wrecked the black community at that time. Yes, yes. And um, both of my parents would describe a level of, of confusion and anger and angst um, because of what that did to the black community. Um, they lost some friendships over it um, and really were in the heart of like that segregation happening right then and there in St. Paul. Um, so they described that to me. Um, we have family and relatives that were some interracial marriages and things like that. So, you know, lots of discussions around what does that mean? What is that about? Um, the conversation that did not occur, which does occur now, but then was the, the topic of whiteness. Whiteness wasn't the topic. It was always a focus on people of color, which, um, you know, centering people of color is critically important, but it was always in terms of centering ourselves. And so what I've come to learn is that, you know, if you're really truly going to be learning about um, cultures other than your own, you have to be able to uncenter yourself and center the people of color that you're learning about. Um, so the conversations when I was growing up were things like being accepting, open-minded, um, understanding we're not all the same, but the conversations didn't go deeper. Um, and I think it's because my parents didn't know how. Um, they were loving, caring, open, compassionate people, but the impact of uh, racism, I don't think was something they knew how to talk about other than what they had experienced in Rondo. Yeah, and that the Rondo neighborhood, if anybody's interested, go Google search that, you know, Rondo plus I-94 and you have an interesting history. And then, I, you know, you look at 35E and all the lawsuits and the rich white people that were able to change the routing, the speed limit, and everything because they were up on the hill over everything, they had a much different outcome than the Rondo neighborhood. And that I think there's an interesting correlation that's just not talked about when it comes to how interstate highways have really played a key role in the destruction of black communities here in our, here in our country, not only in the, in the Twin Cities, but everywhere. Yep. Yeah, same thing here in Rochester. Uh, mm. I-490 I did the same thing. It was purposely routed through some black neighborhoods to divide them. So yeah, this, this is, it's a national phenomenon, unfortunately. And I hope we get over it, but that's another point. But you, how, I'm, I'm going to throw in a question that's not necessarily, but you brought up this topic of centering ourselves mm -hmm. within these conversations when we're talking about people of color. But how do white people talk about whiteness and how can white people uncenter themselves? What are some things from your perspective? Because you know, you're, ra you're raising two biracial children, mm -hmm. two boys that are growing into beautiful young men, just from the pictures that I've tracked them on over the last 12 years on social media. Yeah. But how, you know, how do we uncenter ourselves? Because I think, you know, that's what I'm struggling with as a white person right now. And I'm just laying my cards on the table. Yeah. How, can, how can we uncenter ourselves and have these frank conversations with people to say, okay, th this, here's an idea of how to uncenter yourself and to reach out and to really take action. Because I have a lawn sign up. I don't know if it matters, but I have a lawn sign up, you know, mm -hmm. and it says on it, Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a little thing, but hopefully somebody sees it in the community and goes, well, I wonder why they're doing that. Or maybe mm -hmm. somebody of color sees the sign and knows, you know, if something were to ever happen in the, in this neighborhood that we're a safe place. So mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know beyond that really. So, you know, do you have any examples? Yeah. Um, 
so first I would just say that I don't qualify myself as an educator on race. I qualify myself as a lifelong learner. Um, and I'm deeply committed to um, listening, learning, amplifying the voices of people of color and recognizing that I, as a person who is white, have um, a set of privileges that I carry with myself that can't go away. They, they're, they're in my DNA. Um, however, there are things that I can actively do to combat the effects of racism on communities of color. So when I talk about centering, it's kind of a, a, a it's a balance. Um, the first thing that I would say is that there are uh, a, a lot of people of color, and I'll, I'll just talk about the black community specifically. It's what I'm um, most, um, I've had the most experience with raising two young men whose father is black and my, my sons are biracial. Um, and I would just say thank you for saying biracial. Um, there are some folks that say mixed and there is some negative connotation around describing folks as mixed. Um, this is not necessarily something that is widespread shared across the multiracial community, um, but mixed can often be internalized as mixed up, mixed, not one thing or too many things. And so biracial really is um, a level of identity that one of my sons in particular would describe himself as. Um, so when we talk about centering ourselves, it's really about, um, I can just say very frankly, when we're having conversations about race and a person of color is trying to describe an experience, putting themselves through some level of emotional labor to help us as people who are white understand, my response would be, make sure you understand white person. It is, this is, we're not talking about you. This is not about you. This is about the impacts of people on col of color. On the flip side, it is about you because you carry whiteness everywhere you go. And even though you may not carry racist attitudes in your mind, or maybe you see yourself as a good, loving, caring person, um, who you are in relation to people of color will never change. And you will always represent that line of privilege. You will always represent someone who has benefited from whiteness. And I won't go through all educating the, the definition of whiteness. One thing I would just say is there's a lot of resources out there and really learning and trying to understand what does it mean? What, do we, what does it mean when we talk about whiteness? What does it mean when we talk about racism, anti-racism, microaggressions? You know, microaggressions are little things that we do, I do, we all do. We have blinders that are impacting someone that unless they have the emotional energy, which quite frankly, most people don't over a lifetime to try to call you out on it and help you understand what you just said or did is hurtful or was racist. So centering oneself is about knowing in context what that conversation is about and who you are in relation to someone that you're engaging with and or, and or in relation to the community. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great answer. And thanks for taking a moment to, to talk about that. So, you know, we jump back to your parents here. One more question about them. Do you, and you know, do you think in this time or as they've evolved over the years, do you think they have been able to uncenter themselves from the conversation and step away and, and do that? Yes, yes, they absolutely have been able to. I would say where there's uh, the challenge becomes, um, historical context, right? So they lived through a time I did not live through. You know, my parents were lived through the time before civil rights were enacted. So uh, historical context matters. It matters now, it matters then. And so for my parents, the evolution of how they see race and racism is in relation to the life experiences that they had at any given point in time. Um, the conversations that we can have now certainly become even much more real for them because they have two grandsons that are young men of color. However, they would both tell you that even if they didn't have grandsons of color, they would have the same evolution of attitudes and beliefs and, and have uh, evolved over time. And, and I will say that about myself too. Um, my anti-racism work and my commitment to understanding who I am in relation to uh, whiteness and, and uh, people of color is not because I'm a mother of two young men who are uh, biracial. Um, <clears throat> I just have, I'm closer to some life experiences because I am that mom. 
Yeah. And your life experiences probably have helped you and prepared you to be their mom as well. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> how, you know, if you, if you don't mind, I mean, just high level, you know, how did you end up meeting the father of your, of your sons? Yeah. Real fun story. He was a pizza cook and a, and a bus bus person at a restaurant that I worked at. I was okay. a server and a bartender. He was a mover and a shaker. He was the, the best busser there was. I tipped him a lot. There was a holiday party. We were both single. We went together and the rest is history. Gotcha. Okay. And, you know, so as you started, you know, so you end up having kids and the rest is history. We'll leave that there in, in, the, <laughs> in, the, in the history book of Lisa. But, yeah. you know, you, you have your sons. And when do you start talking about race and those things with the kids, you know, because, you know, I didn't, I didn't have those conversations growing up. So, you know, that's part of my white privilege that I carry, you know, so, but you're in, you have a biracial family. So where do those conversations start for you? Yeah, they start certainly before we had children. Uh, we were very well aware that if we were to be creating a family, that we would be uh, living um, in a way that we had to acknowledge uh, what race meant within our family, what race meant to us as, as two people in love, what race meant to our friends, what race meant to the people around us at work. Um, and, you know, really when it comes down to it, um, love and the desire to have a family together is what what was, you know, superseded everything, but we knew we would be facing challenges. Um, great. I'm grateful and I'm very thankful. I did not have those challenges with close friends and family. Um, and neither did he. Oh, that's nice. Uh, yeah. But that doesn't mean that that was, you know, absent, very specific, hard conversations. Uh, some people would call it courageous conversations. I think I've evolved to it. They're, to me, it's not about being courageous. It's just, about having the right conversations, meaningful conversations, and being willing to um, get uncomfortable and, and listen and learn and hear and understand things that, you know, may, may not make sense at the time. Um, but over time, if you really take a look at what I call the perspective of the person who's sharing their life experience, that's where you have to engage and absorb to understand. Uh, my son's father is from the South, and I won't get into a lot of um, geography conversation, but I will say that, you know, the black community is not monolith, and depending on regions of the United States where you come from, um, blackness takes on um, different interpretations um, internally for folks, as well as just, you know, geographically and culturally. Um, if you were to talk with a black family from where my son's uh, father is from, or if you talk to a black family that's, you know, maybe been here in Minnesota much longer, um, there's very similar life experiences when it comes to racism, but there are some cultural things within their own families that are very different. Um, so yeah, when I Minnesota, visited, I was just going to say that Minnesota yeah. nice thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very hurtful, but that's real. Yeah. The Minnesota nice thing, it gets, th gets you through on the surface, you know, but there's mm -hmm. a lot of undertones. Um, sorry, in I jumped South, in, but yeah. In the yeah. South. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. And, and it's funny, if you, t if you talk to folks that live in the South, like they are just baffled by this whole concept of Minnesota nice, which is like, wow. But yeah, when um, I traveled to meet family down South uh, with my oldest son, he was about four months old, um, I learned just through that real experience that there were many people in my son's father's family that hadn't uh, interacted with white people. They lived in a, in a community that was predominantly black. Uh, so it was very difficult for them to welcome me in. And again, it's because of who I represented and who I was in relation to them. I was that white lady from the North coming down to visit. That's pretty powerful. So um, spent a lot of time just listening and learning and building relationships and um, still in touch and totally uh, in contact with family today. And, and, and not all of the family perceived me that way. There were some folks that were very much just, you know, open. There were other folks where we had to have some pretty tough conversations. Was there any perceptions and maybe this is the wrong thing and I could edit this out if it's, you know, but anybody like the white savior mentality, I know you well enough to know that that's, but did it, 
did something along those lines come up? Like, who are you from the north? Trying, you know, trying to save our our son, our family member, our friend. Any any conversations along those lines? No, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, because the white savior mentality in general is something that's quite pervasive across some what I would say well-intended white people. Um, but I think the reality is is black folks don't need being saved. They just need white people to move out the way um, so that they can, <laughs> so that they can live their lives and have their voices amplified. Um, but no, those conversations did not occur when I was uh, meeting friends and family from my, my father or my son's father's side of the family. Because yeah. um, I don't think I carry myself that way and I didn't portray myself that way. Um, and so I just think it was kind of a non-issue. If it was, it didn't get talked about. Gotcha. Well, and you mean, and you, we talk about the the white savior mentality. I mean, that's the whole movie, The Blind Side. Yeah. Yep. You know, exactly. Yes. You know, and it's funny because, you know, when that movie came out, what, 10, 15 years over, right, you know, a while back now. But I remember watching going, oh, this is a great feel good movie. And now, like, I've white, I'm, I've read White Fragility. I've been listening, having these conversations, you know, about privilege, you know, and I've primarily approached privilege, privilege from the perspective of a white woman who happens to be transgender. But, I, you know, but you start seeing things differently. And then you then you start thinking about movies like The Blind Side, and you're like, oh, this is highly problematic. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and many folks who probably watched that movie and had no clue that it was well, problematic. Yeah. Yep. It, was, it was a movie designed for white people. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, yep. so talk about your sons and, you know, racially, you know, we talk about the word biracial, and I'm, and I'm happy you talk about that versus the other word because mm-hmm. – I, yeah, there's nothing wrong with your kids. They're not mixed up. They're not mixed anything. They're just happen to have two parents that one's black, one's white, and that makes yeah. them biracial. So, yeah. Yeah. and even on the census, that's an option now mm-hmm. too. So that's fantastic. But, but we kind of alluded to this and one of the things in our, um, you know, pre-gaming for this interview is like, how do your sons identify racially? Do they identify racially the same? Or are there some differences between them? How do they how do they approach their identification? I mean, we don't want to talk too much for them, but you are their mom, so we're interviewing you, not them. So there you go. Yeah, yeah, and and I'm glad you pointed that out. So what I'll share is what they have shared, and it's conversations that we've had as you know, mother and sons, and identity is critical. Um, and it's, it was very important to me as a mom to not assume. Um, and while I play the role of mom and, and caretaker, there are things that I will never experience or understand from their point of view. So when we start talking about identity, it's really about um, what identity means for them. And I have one son that identifies as biracial. And I ask him, you know, how, why do you see your, why do you describe yourself as biracial? And it's pretty straightforward. I have, my mom is white, my dad is black. Um, my other son identifies as black. And he says very kindly, you know, no disrespect, mom. It's not because I'm a race new, it's just because that is how society regards me. And that's how I identify as black. Wow. And I ask that, yeah, again, that's an example of centeredness, right? That, that is not about me. So I have to uncenter myself in hearing that my son identifies as black. It has nothing to do with erasing me. That's how he is regarded in society. And that is how he chooses to identify. Um, and I think they both would probably say they're young, right? So we still have to remember that their brains are evolving over time, their context and their life experiences limited they're 15 and 18 years old they've had quite a bit um experience but over time this conversation could be had and they may change you know but that's that's where they're at today so yeah that's an interesting thing and i would say you know neither one of those are wrong answers they both make perfect sense and you have to give your child that ability to have that and you know i think that's one of the things you know anybody who's not not white it's a hard thing for because we're trained as white people not to talk about race you know we we don't see color we judge people individually and you know no wonder why my friends of color before would just roll their eyes at me when i said crap like that but you know Mm -hmm. that's neither here nor there um but how 
have they struggled at all with those identities or has that just pretty much been as they've grown up that's pretty much has it been consistent for them it's been consistent um i would say they haven't struggled in identifying themselves but um who they are in relation to the people they go to school with the people that live on the block the people that are on their sports teams um, and the life experiences that they've had um, it didn't take long for them to realize, um, especially growing up in White Bear Lake, that they are seen as different. And how do you explain to someone that you're different when in their own minds, they're just, they're like, I'm me. And when we talk yep. about difference, different from who? Again, that's about white people centering themselves. If my sons are different to them, which yes, in relation to someone who's white, they're different. But if that's the context that they're surrounded in all the time, that starts to really weigh heavy on identity. So your one son just graduated from high school this year in White Bear Lake, and you and I graduated in 1990-something-something. Something. Um, <laughs> but, okay, so my graduating class was 500 people, roughly. I don't I imagine yours is about the same. I yeah. can remember three black kids in my class and a couple, you know, Korean, other Asians. Um, what's the racial makeup now of these classes coming through White Bear Lake? Yeah, more diverse than that. Um, you cannot count on one hand the number of, of black students or Asian students, etc. Um, it's quite a bit more uh, still predominantly white community. Um, but I would say uh, a, a decent shift in and being uh, multiracial. Okay. And you mentioned school and sports and teams and those type of things. So we'll wrap this up in one question. Has mm -hmm. there been any mistreatment? Has there been any bullying or anything like that through, you know, as they've gone through the school system there in White Bear Lake? Yes. Yeah. That's pretty straightforward. Uh, um, and I guess, yeah, yes. And um, goes back to you know, before they were one or two years old and it's still happening today. And so. how, I, and I can kind of sense that you don't want to spend too much time on this, but is there any experience or anything that you've dealt with as a mother that, you know, obviously it's painful for you because you don't want, I'm a parent too, so we don't want to see our kids suffer, but mm -hmm. how, how, how do you deal with that? Um, yeah, thanks for acknowledging or recognizing that, um, I, I may not want to talk about it. I think for me, I, I would be happy to share. Um, I, I want people to learn and understand from life experiences, but in all honesty, there's been so many experiences, like I wouldn't even know where to start. Um, and I think that's something that comes up when friends or family ask me that question it's almost, and you didn't imply this in your question, but sometimes it's implied when I'm asked that as if I can think of like maybe three or four situations. And my response is like, it's kind of continuous. I have more profound, more profound um, experiences that I can recall. And when I think about how profound they were on me, just trying to put myself in my son's shoes, how profound they were on them. But it's a combination of um, microaggressions. So again, those small things that people don't realize what they're saying and doing is actually hurting my sons um, to bigger things that were pretty blatant. So how do I work through that? Um, each situation is different. It really depends on um, who who is around, what it's about and what the impact is. Um, that I've, I use this term emotional labor, like it's, it's very emotionally laborious. And sometimes you just choose not, you just, you know, for lack of better words, whatever, I'm not going to deal with that. Um, and other situations you absolutely have to call out and deal with. And I want to differentiate that between my, my commitment as a person who I am anti-racist when I need to speak up, step up, show up, I will. Um, but when it comes to doing it as a mother and with my sons, there are so many things I have to consider and factor in. And number one is them. Um, they don't always want everything addressed and followed up on, and that's their right. And I have to understand and respect that. So there's kind of this duality that I have to navigate all the time about is, you know, is this a situation I'm going to 
speak up on? Is this a situation that they want to process and talk about? Is this a situation that we just move on? Um, and all of the experiences have been a mix of all of that. There's, I've regained my composure, but my eyes started leaking a little bit in there. Sorry. Um, no, it's it's good because there's a lot of emotion in there, and you you mentioned the word profound, but the profoundness of this is is that you know I asked you know that question maybe there was something, but there's just so many you don't know where to start, and that I is just it's such a sad commentary, yeah, on whiteness, yes, and how we are so. And I would guess, you know, the big stuff is, yeah, you want to deal with that, but those microaggressions are so hard to deal with. And it's so hard to explain to somebody who is so centered on themselves within society, within a, within a culture that was built for whiteness mm -hmm. and to be cisgendered heterosexual on top of that, mm -hmm. that the little comments, the little microaggressions, the looks, those take, I think, probably a bigger toll on us over time mm -hmm. than the big stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's where, where, what, what battle do you want to fight? Because you can't fight all of them. Mm -mm. I mean, no, you can't. I mean, the amount of stress and labor, like you said, I mean, how, how would you even approach every everything that comes up? Well, and there's things at stake depending on what it is. You know, uh, there's repercussions even if it's the right thing to do sometimes. And, you know, as an adult, uh, there's no repercussions that I shy away from. But when I say repercussion, I'm talking about impact on my sons. Um, I, I just thought of one example I could share that might highlight, like, as a mom, how I had to quickly and painfully navigate how to respond in a situation. Um, my oldest is, uh, was a part of the Cub Scout troops, mm -hmm. and um, he was the only uh, young young black man. Well, I keep saying man because he's eighteen now. Young, <laughs> he's a young black child at that time, um, and and he has amazing hair, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he was in a troop meeting one night and the, um, troop leader, something went awry with his activity. So he ad-libbed and said, let's all play charades. So the, the, the Cub Scouts all got in a circle and played charades. And there was one young fella, white fella, uh, went in the middle of the circle and did his charade thing. And he was kind of, um, jumping and putting his arm up in a goofy motion and coming down in a goofy motion and kids kept guessing and guessing and guessing and couldn't guess what he was charading. And um, he finally stopped and he said, you guys, I'm an African American. And yeah, your face just went, yeah. So I'm sitting in the room. Um, some parents would stay for troop night and some didn't because this was when they were little, little. Um, and so my first reaction was to speak up and speak out, but then I quickly realized, okay, do I say something to this young child? Do I scoop up my child and leave? Do I say something to the troop leader? And so I just kind of froze and the kids all laughed. And I, I looked at my son and I knew it hurt him so bad. And it occurred to me in that moment, so profound. This is a whole circle of young white fellas that A, have no idea what they just did. Um, but B, they learn that from somewhere. And, and how does that, how does that affect the next conversations I have to have? Cause you better believe I was going to have a conversation. I just didn't know what, when, why, or how. Um, so I did follow up with the, tr I chose not to address it in that moment um, because I was kind of reading the body language of my son and the body language was, I'm just gonna, you know, let that soak in. 
So I had a conversation, first conversation I had was with my son later on that night about the meet, uh, at the meeting, um, learned what he felt and what it meant to him. Um, had, I had a conversation with the troop leader. I addressed it very directly. He quickly realized what, um, how racist that behavior was. And the troop leader happened to be the father of the young fella that did this. So um, he said, oh, I promise you, I yelled at him and I yelled at him. And then I kind of was hurt inside because my goal wasn't for the young fellow to get yelled at. It was for him to learn. And I, I don't know that that's what he took away from it. Um, so anyways, fast forward to this day, that father is still afraid to make eye contact with me. <laughs> yeah, those feelings are pretty hard to, to overcome on on both sides. Mm -hmm. And I, and I would say, you know, I think, I think his response was very white centered. Yes. You know, I'm going to yell. Yes. Yell doesn't a frank, honest conversation would have been the right answer. Mm -hmm. Maybe yeah. inviting, and learn. Yep. maybe inviting you and your son over to have that conversation. Yeah such an opportunity wasted and you know it's and it's too bad that you know this I, you said gentleman right yeah that, that he won't look at you yet today i mean mm -hmm. there could have been such a healing moment there that it was it's just lost yeah oh kills me well let's you 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 mentioned to you know let's fast forward to today and what's going on i mean um have attitudes changed towards your sons, you know, in the last couple months since the murder of George Floyd and, you know, White Bear Lake is 30 minutes from downtown Minneapolis. So, you know, what, with the rise of the Black Lives Matter over the last few years, and especially in the last two months, you know, how, how are your sons and how are you, and how is your family being perceived now in the community there? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not, I don't know how we're being perceived. I will say that there are, uh, you know, I've continued to uh, help folks understand that, you know, being silent or um, not being willing to listen and learn is not okay. And I give examples of, you know, if you can't understand it just from a humanitarian standpoint or from a, this is, you know, anti-racism is just the right thing to be us uh, at least for my sons because you know my sons please listen um i've seen a shift in a lot of people i've heard of more commitment to um listening and learning and you know this evolution of being an ally is is happening with some folks um it's hard to say you know will is is it performative and just short-lived right now or will it be a longer term commitment and, and folks understanding, I don't know. Um, but between my children being born and the murder of George Floyd and everything in between, you know, there's always that fear as a mother, every time my sons walk out the door, what could happen? And then there's more people in my inner circles that are starting to better understand that. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Just answer the next question for me. Do you feel? For, do you fear oh, fear yeah. for their safety? And the answer is yeah. a hard yes. So it's a hard yes. I have to have conversations that parents of white children never have to have. When um, did you start having those conversations? So because I'm sure it just yeah. didn't start right now. So I mean, no. how young were they? Do you think? Yeah. Um, probably they were incremental over time. Yeah, age appropriate. Um, and age appropriate, incremental, and then very contextual, right? So, you know, there's the obvious one when the when the oldest got his driver's license, had to have that conversation about what happens if you get pulled over. Um, if you're, you know, out hanging out with your friends in the park and the park is closed, uh, you 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 have a greater uh, concern for your safety about hanging out in a closed park. You're not going to be seen as the, the white kid from white bear hanging out in the closed park. You know, you, you might get brought down to the station for trespassing. Um, so, and I don't know, maybe around age eight or 10 contextual conversations and they've evolved over time to now my oldest is 18 and about to go off to college. And so we're having some very different conversations about 
his safety when he when he leaves the state for college. So well, and he's he's going to North Dakota State, correct? Correct. Um, I'm sure campus environment is going to be you know diverse at some level, maybe even a little bit more than you know you know the community and the high school he comes out of. But at the same time, it's 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 rural North it, rural North Dakota is 20 minutes outside of Fargo. Mm-hmm. Northwestern Minnesota, right across the river, is very rural, very conservative. I went to college in Bemidji for two years. So yeah. that, and you know, my daughter right now goes to school in Pennsylvania. And that's, people think of Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, these big glamorous cities. But I'll tell you what, these rural areas are, you know, very, very conservative, very isolated, very insular communities Mm -hmm. you know any thought given you know to that those surrounding areas around Fargo yeah um yeah lots of thought and and I would just say the diversity of NDSU is actually not as diverse as you would think um it um there are uh, a lot of uh international exchange students as well as students from several communities of color, but the black population is not very big at all at NDSU. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's going to be, um, you know, having a plan and, and how to respond and what to do and who to reach out to. And most importantly, um, if things are happening is to, to reach out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is he going to be an athlete at school? No. Nope. Okay. Yep. Yep, he's he's retired the football and the wrestling. Well, we talk about microaggressions, and that's yeah. you know that's one of the big things on college campuses. You know, everybody sees somebody who's black. Are you on the basketball team? Are you on this team? Yeah. You know, and then they kind of like, oh no, you're not. Uh, I guess I don't want to talk to you now. I don't want to be your friend because. Right. Yeah. I mean, any yep. thought to that question? Yeah. Um, you know, I. I'm confident that he's had enough life experiences that he'll find a way to engage and connect. Um, the bigger key will be, um, you know, to reach out if things are happening and not to bury it. Yep. So he's getting ready to go to college, but um, the older one now, but he, but he works in a grocery store in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And since the, the rioting, since the George Floyd murder, and all the protests and everything that's gone on in Minneapolis, because there's been some pretty interesting pictures coming out of, out of my home state where you still live. I mean, how have been the, how have the customers reacted to him in the grocery store? Has he noticed any changes? People nicer because people a little bit more standoffish, you know, and then you throw in COVID-19. It's just this weird Petri dish of emotions and everything going on right now. So. Yeah, I don't know that there's been a drastic change for him. Um, I'm trying to think of how I could articulate this. Um, he's well loved at the grocery store. Um, customers and coworkers. Um, he used to be a, a grocery bagger. Now he actually works in the frozen and dairy section. Um, but you know, he was kind of like, if you wanted your groceries bagged, it, w- it was my son to do it. He did it so well. Um, but the caveat behind that is, um, as a young black man, sometimes he had to um, prove himself a little extra more to put folks at ease. Yep. Um, and it, that's one of those internalized um, behaviors that over time, he probably doesn't even recognize him. he's doing it. It's just become part of his default to have to really make sure that others around him feel comfortable. Now, don't get me wrong, that's your job to, to make people feel comfortable if you're in customer service. But I think the level in which he had to do it was elevated to a degree. Um, but I can't think of anything specific that he's experienced. Um, actually now that he works in frozen and dairy, he's kind of by himself in the back and isn't interacting with a lot of people. (laughs) I guess that's a good thing then, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah. Well, final question here then. Do you think White Bear Lake, Minnesota is a good place for people of color to live today? Yeah. You know, that's a really um, heavy question. I can't even answer it um, because I don't think it's, I, I don't know that I, as a white person, 
should navigate that answer. What I will say is... um, Let's put it this way. Do you think it's a decent place to raise a biracial family? Maybe that's a better question. Okay. So that speaks more to your experience directly versus somebody else's. Sure. Thank you. Um, It's okay. Um, if I had to do it over again, I would probably raise my sons in a different community for the sake of diversity. Um, but we've had the right level of support. Um, and I've built some insulation around us as a family and some really trusted connections. And I think that, um, they have had a relatively good experience as young men going to white bear. I can't point to anything where I would say, yeah, don't, if you're, if you're a black family or if you're a family of color, don't come here. Um, if I would just say, you're going to navigate what you're going to navigate living in a white dominant society. Um, when I say if I had to do it over again, I would go somewhere a little more diverse. Um, I would do that only because um, their their father has not um, been in their life for a while. And so as a white mother raising young black men, um, there's a piece that was missing. And perhaps yeah. if he was still connected, my answer would be different. No, that's fair. But, you know, out of curiosity, are there communities in your area? And I'm, you know, as we alluded to before we got rolling with this is I haven't lived in white bear Lake since 1992. And so are there diverse communities because here in Rochester, New York, you're either in the city where it's, you know, Hispanic black and, you know, very segregated neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And then you have the suburbs, like a lot of other big cities around the country. Um, Granted, we're a lot smaller than the twin cities here in upstate New York where I'm at. But the suburbs are white. The city is predominantly black and Hispanic. So there's not that opportunity, though, to mix. Do you think you would be able to find a community in your area that has a better level of diversity? Um, I think so. You know, um, I've had conversations with uh, co-workers who live in different areas and you know depending on where you go school systems are tricky no matter what um, and there's a lot of complexities and so when I when I when I talk about White Bear Lake raising sons I, I you'll hear me default to the school system because that is that is a huge platform of a young person's life right so if I were to look at the school system versus just the community overall they're interrelated but they're kind of separate um, White Bear Lake has made some decent commitment um, to some work in supporting students of color, and I think they've had a, a good experience. But overall, is White Bear Lake still a predominantly white suburban neighborhood? Yes. I think it's like 89% according to the U.S. Census from yeah, 2010. Probably. I think it was in the 90s, you know, at least when we were growing up, you know, mm-hmm. mid-90s, like 95%. Okay. But yeah. the second biggest being Hispanic and then Asian. So, yeah, you know, blacks are actually like, you know, you look at the list of people of color, they were third. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they're even, you know, they're even a little bit more disadvantaged within that context and because they're not the, you know, the largest people of persons of color group either. So, right. I've learned recently too the word, you know, you mentioned the word um, mixed being a negative word, but how do you feel about minority? Because um, I've really tried to avoid that, you know, consciously avoid that word lately. How do you yeah. feel about that word? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to describing a person, um, it's a negative connotation in my experience, in my perspective. Um, to me, minority is means there's a majority. Um, and when we're talking about people, it really shouldn't be about more or less. So that's why I don't prefer or support using the word minority because you're emphasizing the less. Yep. And I think that's, that's a new, new perspective, especially for white people. Mm. Yeah. I think that would agree with that. So, well, Lisa, you've been more than fair and with your time and, you know, answering these questions, I, 
I, I hope you enjoyed speaking with me as much as I enjoyed seeing you on the other side of the Zoom. And um, hopefully the COVID-19s will still, um, Minnesota will stay off of the New York travel advisory list um, because I'm really looking forward to seeing you in September and, and hopefully meeting one of your sons because the other one will be in Fargo. And I'm the not going yeah. to road trip to Fargo for the weekend. So Okay. Yeah. I'll let you pass on that. <laughs> But, you know, hopefully we can continue these frank conversations then over uh, a beverage or two in September. How does that sound? Uh, I'm in. All right. Deal. So, well, uh, thanks again, Lisa. And we'll be back with more Transformation Thursday right after this. To financially support Transformation Thursday, go to TransformationThursday.com and that will bring you to our Patreon page. Once there, click on the Become a Patron button. You can also follow us online on Facebook. You can follow us by searching for Transformation Thursday Podcast. And please join our private Facebook group by searching Transformation Thursday on Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us at TransThursPod. To make sure you stay up to date with all the latest episodes, please subscribe to the Transformation Thursday Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google podcast or wherever you get your podcasts on apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating and a short review it's free and it does help get transformation thursday out to a larger audience finally transformation thursday is copyrighted material all rights reserved 2020